Well, welcome to lesson number two of Divine Judgment. We're calling this one Different Types of Judgment. And we are building a theological framework to try to understand exactly what judgment is and how it works. I said previously that uh, there's a modern tendency in progressive Christianity to teach this heresy that says it was God who got saved at Calvary, not us. And now that God has been saved at Calvary, so say the heretics, not us. Now that God is saved, he's much nicer. I've even heard it say that uh, the Jews, they serve a God of the Old Testament. They serve a different God, a mean God. It's the same God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He changes not. We happen to live in the age of grace and mercy, but he is still the righteous judge. And so we're studying scriptures on judgment to understand what God is saying and revealing about himself. While I'm studying these lessons out and writing the curriculum, I'm also building a massive spreadsheet on all the judgment events or the events of divine judgment throughout the Bible. I'm not even out of the book of Numbers yet. I've already got 25 or 26 major judgment events, and they all do the same thing. They're all trying to eliminate sin and glorify God. The purpose of all judgment, and we'll probably say that over and over again, is to eliminate sin and glorify God. And it doesn't take an end time wrath to do that. You and I can do it little by little by judging our attitudes, judging our appetites, judging our sin and getting it out right now so that we don't have to be overtaken with divine wrath in the last days. So let's jump into this. Remember, we are defining divine judgment as the authority, right and requirement. And that's what we have to understand. God's holy character requires him into, it requires him to investigate all actions. It's also his love that investigates all actions, persons, and assemblies. And an assembly can be a family or an assembly can be a nation. And it rewards, divine judgment rewards what is deemed to be righteous, but it's correcting and warning before punishing that which is deemed wicked. Before we can ever be rewarded, we have to be judged. And we need to get that into our thick skull, too. You and I both recognize that our nation and our pop culture is highly allergic to judgment. Except you don't get the Oscar unless your film is judged. And you don't get the gold medal unless your performance is judged. And you don't get the football trophy unless your team is judged. And you don't get accepted into the university unless your scholarship is judged. And you don't get the job unless your resume and your performance in the interview is judged. Other than all of that, there should be no judgment. <laughs> shame, shame, shame on carnal us. God is a just God, and his judgment is just. And this is one thing we've got to really get into our thick skull and our hearts as well. Lord, you are just, and anything you decide to do is just. You, you and I have no right to ever complain to God about how he destroyed something or how he rewarded something. All of God's judgments are just. David said in Psalm 119, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous. God is not like a Supreme Court judge who's perverted. He's not like a local circuit judge who's perverted. God's judgments are just, and whatever he does, he does with righteousness and integrity. And when he does judge, who are we to judge? That's the only time you and I can say, who are we to judge? When God has dropped his divine gavel, that's when we say, Lord, you're just. We should be listening for the request to intercede and stand in the gap. But if he's not requested it, just step back and let him do his thing. And that can be a scary time. To understand divine judgment, it helps to understand that like the natural realm, the spirit realm operates on a cause and effect basis. And because causes differ, 
so then do the effects. So all of that says not all judgment is the same. All judgment is different, but it, it accomplishes the same result. Eliminate sin, glorify God. Eliminate sin, glorify God. The basic purpose of all judgment is to remove sin and glorify God. Leviticus 23, which we'll study in a future lesson, it says this, and if for all these things you still not be reformed by me, then I will bring upon you seven worse judgments. The whole purpose of divine judgment is to be reformed by God in your current situation. All judgment, the purpose is to reform you, to reform me, to eliminate sin, to bring the blessing of God back and to glorify his name. So this, is, this lesson is called Different Types of Judgment. In the previous lesson, we kind of showed this, this judgment spectrum, beginning with self-judgment and self-inspection, all the way up to either rewards or destruction. So what we're going to do is go through examples, and each one of these subheadings, judgment as inspection, etc., it could be a lesson on its own. It could even be a curriculum on its own. And so what we want to make sure we do is uh, look at these cl- closely and uh, understand them. So number one, inspection as judgment, or judgment as inspection, all divine judgment begins as inspection. Proverbs 15.3 says this. It says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Beholding the evil and the good. This lets us know God is everywhere, constantly looking. And because God is perfect, everything imperfect is going to stick out to him. But everything that is holy and just is also going to stick out to him, and he's going to reward it. It is God inspecting us, our works and our motives, and comparing them to his standard as declared in the word. So here's the cool thing. When we are inspected by God, we're compared to an unchanging standard. So even if we just have half a wit about us, we can learn what's expected eventually. I'm thankful that God's word is not constantly being edited and revised and updated like college textbooks, like academic studies, like morals. God's word is forever settled under heaven. So as we get to know the Bible, we can master what's expected of us. And divine judgment is less and less in certain areas because we've gotten better. Just like raising children. If they understand mom and dad don't change household rules, they can master what's expected of them and get mom and dad off their back. The funny thing is, is when you're a teenager and you're so ignorant, you can't learn what mom and dad expects. So you're frustrated. I like what one teenager told their sibling. Hey, just get with the deal and mom and dad will stay off your back. (laughs) Teenagers think they're so smart and let they slouch around with this lazy, dumpy attitude and just get with the deal, get with the program. I mean, your, your life is only going to get worse from here on out. Mom and dad cut you mercy because they have to, because they love you. You get a boss, he won't cut you any slack. He'll just fire you. You'll be a bum living in a van down by the river. <laughs> Once we have been inspected, divine judgment moves into its second phase, which we'll cover later. So we want to understand that the first aspect of divine judgment is simply inspection. I don't have all the scriptures. There's so many of them for each one of these points. But one of them in Psalms says, judge me, O Lord, and see if you find any wicked thing. That's inspection. That's David. I think Psalm 138 or 143, something like that, saying, Lord, inspect me, judge me, search me. The old Pentecostal song, search me, Lord. If you find any wicked thing, just reveal it to me and I'll deal with it. We ought to embrace this 
like mama at Christmas time, man. Just embrace divine inspection. I'm calling each of these like inspection judgment, wrath judgment. We ought to embrace this inspection judgment like it would save our life because it would. First Chronicles 28, 9, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the imaginations of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found of thee. But if you forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. The Lord searches all hearts. That is inspection judgment. Romans 8, 27 says the same thing. And he that searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. In Romans 8, 27, we see the Lord Jesus inspects the hearts of men in order to aid in the Holy Spirit's intercession for the individual. This is a judgment that can save us from a lot of pain and loss. When the Lord is searching our hearts, which is one of his primary jobs right now in the earth, the Lord Jesus Christ, that is, he is searching our hearts to correct us, to preserve us from future pain. Same like parents raising their kids at home. We teach our children how to adjust their attitudes so that they don't uh, uh, cop that attitude or crack that attitude open on their teacher or a future employer or a professor. We are adjusting their attitudes when they're two and four and five and ten so that they know how to get their emotions under control and regulate their attitude at home around the most abundant mercy they'll ever find outside the throne of God. God does the same thing with us. He deals with us in our hearts concerning the attitudes of our hearts, concerning the motives of our hearts, concerning the desires of our hearts, so that thing doesn't get bigger and cause a worse judgment down the road. This is why I've taught us as a congregation for years now to pray, Lord, show me where I'm wrong. I've told you there's two, the two quickest ways to hear the divine voice of God, two quickest prayers to pray. Lord, give me someone to witness to, and within 20 minutes, you'll be directed to somebody. Or, Lord, show me where I'm wrong. It seems to me from my Christian walk, if I haven't heard the divine voice of God for, in a while, all I have to say is, Lord, show me where I'm wrong, and I'll know, or show me who to witness to, and then I'll be drawn to somebody. I've, I've taught us for years to pray regularly, Lord, show me where I'm wrong. And that is invoking inspection judgment upon our life. It's the best kind of judgment because it doesn't kill anything. <laughs> it helps us and it preserves us. The only thing it does kill is pride. And that thing needs to die a violent death. Amen. Look at Zephaniah 1.12. And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles or lanterns, lamps. And I will punish the men that are settled on their lees that say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, neither will he do evil. So again, there's so many verses that talk about the Lord searching and inspecting. I just pulled a few of them. But this example from Zephaniah is an example of inspection judgment that further reveals that the Lord's, heart, uh, the Lord's concern rests in the heart of man. His first chain of command, his first line of inspection is always the motive in the heart. And he says, I'm going to punish those that say in their heart. He's not going to punish the fornicator first. He's not going to punish the homosexual first. He's not going to punish the adulterer first. He's going to punish the person with a bad heart because he's been dealing with that heart all along. Before you fornicate, you got a perverse heart. Before you're a homosexual, you have a perverse heart. Before you embezzle money, you have a perverse heart. And before any of those actions manifest, God's inspecting your heart, dealing with you about your heart and your motives and your thoughts and your intentions and your purposes and your emotions. Amen. After this inspection, 
God was going to punish those who had not changed their attitude toward God. We will always see inspection first followed up by some other action. And we have to have our heart open for business all the time. Lord, I'm yours. Inspect me. We like to talk about that military expression where they take that white glove and they draw it across the lintel. If your house is dusty like mine, you don't need a white glove. You can just kind of tilt your head in the right light and go, I do a lot of dusting just by blowing. I figure if God can blow upon things and cleanse them, so can I. I just let it fall to the ground and then I vacuum it up. It's kind of lazy, but when you're busy like me and you don't have someone who dusts on a regular basis and your kids are still little, things get blown upon a lot in my household, just to be honest with you. How about judgment as correction? After divine judgment has accomplished its necessary inspection of the heart, typically correction will follow, especially if you're dense and you can't see it. Once you get old enough in the things of God, he just has to point at something and you know instantly what to do. Sometimes, though, he points at something and you're like, oh, okay, is that a problem? And then he brings correction. And correction is also judgment. But we shouldn't fear that judgment. We should embrace it. The only thing worse than being wrong is staying wrong. And if you didn't know, we're all wrong somewhere. And we don't want to be wrong any longer. So don't be offended if somebody corrects you. Don't be offended if I correct you. Don't be offended if your spouse corrects you, or even if the, out of the mouth of babes, your, your child corrects you. Don't be offended if a pagan corrects you, or your boss, or your teacher, or a police officer. We're all wrong somewhere. We ought to be thankful for correction, because the only thing worse than being wrong is staying wrong. This is judgment that is good. It is good judgment. The only thing it kills is pride. Here we will group correction together with chastisement, rebuke, and scourging. We're going to lump all those together, though we could do a separate teaching and break them out. But I have to simplify this lesson. Hebrews 12 is one of the best passages on all this. It says, You have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, saying, My son, despise not thou the corrections of the Lord, or the chastening of the Lord. Don't faint when you are rebuked of him. You know the Lord has to say don't faint because so many folks do. Do you know how many Christians have quit church because they were corrected? Do you know how many times I hear a carnal Christian mumble through the grapevine? Well, he only preached that because I was there at service. You're welcome. I took time out of my service to direct help your way. And what do I get from you but belly aching and the mully grubs? Your parents did you no service as a parent correcting your little childish attitude. The Lord has to say, don't faint when we're rebuked, because a lot of folks do. Brother uh, Lester Sumrall told a story one time when he was a young teenager preacher and didn't want to preach, but he didn't want to die. He was kind of under this divine mandate. You can preach or you can die. He said, I'll preach. So he started preaching. He didn't care about people. And he was packing houses because the calling of God was on him, though he had no heart for God or for people. People were drawn to the anointing, not the young man. But he said in this one service, he was drawn by the Spirit of God, though he did not like God and did not like people. He was drawn to this young lady in the crowd, and he was, just, he was just put out. He wanted to be done with the service, and he called her out, and he said, young lady, you should come down to this altar. You need to be saved. And she said, I don't want to come. He said, then go to hell. And he said, when he yelled that at her, she fainted. She didn't fall out on the Holy Ghost. She fainted because his preacher yelled at her, you can go to hell then. <laughs> I've never yelled at someone like that from the pulpit and caused them to faint. But in our hearts, we quit, we get offended, we fall apart, we lick our wounds, we retreat. And all that is, is you just being a hairy baby. 
hairy baby. All adults are, are children with older bodies. That's all they are until you grow up in your soul. For whom the Lord loves, he chasteneth or chasteneth and scourges every son whom he receives. And he doesn't do all that himself. He'll do it through your pagan boss. He'll do it through your professor. He'll do it through a police officer. He'll do it through a newspaper article. We get corrected from every angle and it's always the hand of God. So don't, don't, uh, don't just diminish correction if it didn't come from the divine voice of God. It's not going to come from that voice most of the time. It's going to come from the scriptures, from a sermon, from a loved one. And we ought to be looking for more of it. He chasteneth and loves every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers. Notice all of us get corrected. I get corrected by the Lord on a regular basis. And the only difference between maybe the corrections I get and you is perhaps the way we respond to them. I can't fall apart. I get corrected by my elders in the faith, not the elders of the church, but the elders of the faith. I get corrected by my pastor. I have mentors that have corrected me. I don't get to fall apart over it. I have to rise under it. Amen. We are all partakers. If you don't receive chastisement, then are you bastards or illegitimate and not sons. For correction or chastisement to occur, it is obvious that inspection judgment has already taken place and something has been found lacking when compared to God's standard. <laughs> I don't know why we get mad at God for correcting us, whether it's through the preacher, through prayer, through a sermon, through, through a song. You should be mad at yourself. Let God be true and every man a liar. Folks say, I, I got so mad at my boss. Why? He yelled at me. Why did he yell at you? Because I was late for work. Shame on you. What was shame on me? Because your boss had to get on to you. You, sh you owe him an apology and you owe God an apology. Amen. The New Testament commands us neither to despise nor faint at this form of judgment. This correction judgment actually proves that God claims us as his children. There have been seasons of my life when I've been under intense judgment by God, uh, formative years, my, usually my mid to late 20s, and it seemed like I couldn't go 30 minutes without the Lord dealing with me, and I had to call my pastor about something or repent to somebody in the office. It was, it was ruthless. I, it, was, it was miserable day in and day out. And it was seasons of judgment that I had invoked upon myself because I claimed I wanted to serve him and I claimed I wanted to be a minister and I claimed I wanted to fulfill the call of God on my life. And there was about a three-year period in my mid to late 20s that every day was miserable because the Lord was always correcting me. I could be on a job site drilling and in the middle of the day, the Lord deal with me about calling my pastor, confessing something to him and getting his wisdom. And I, one day I remember being on this drilling site, on this roundabout, on this intersection, on the interstate. And I remember saying, Lord... I just called Pastor Trey three hours ago and you want me to call him again? Now listen, I'm not saying that I don't want your phone calls. I'm not telling you this to say you guys should be doing this. I'm telling you about a season in my life. And I, was just, I know he was getting tired of hearing from me. And he's like, yeah, 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 I forgive you. Yeah, you know what to do, yeah. But I had to do it to obey God. When that season passed and God wasn't correcting me on a regular basis, I felt naked and abandoned because his correction 
had become this hand on me that was forming me into what I needed to be coming out of my early 20s. And when that season left me, I said, Lord, are we okay? Are you, you haven't chewed me out in three or four days. Lord, are we okay? You haven't yelled at me, in a sense, in a month. Are we okay? I felt like I had failed him. Did you leave me like you left Samson? You haven't corrected me in a while. So then I called up Pastor Vaughn. Pastor Vaughn, you got to rebuke me. You haven't corrected me. And he said, son, you don't need corrections all the time. You're kind of maturing now. If you're needing correction all the time now, you're a mess. And that was a little encouraging, but I was just so used to being corrected. I remember even being in SMTI in that season, and Dr. Barclay said one time, now nobody likes correction, but I was in a season where I said out of my mouth, I do. And I was like, whoa. Huh. Hey, yeah, well, I've outgrown that. I still don't like correction, but I was in a season when I really loved it. I've kind of digressed since then. Nobody likes correction, but I had gotten to a place in that season where I prayed for it so much that it was what I expected every day. And it didn't offend me. I got offended when it wasn't forthcoming. My point with all that is not to say I'm awesome because I am not where I was 20 years ago when I yelled at the TV and said, I love correction, but that no correction seems pleasant now, but we've got to receive it because it makes us better. The only thing worse than being wrong is staying wrong. And the only way to improve is to have somebody correct you. Amen. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two. 32. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord. So we call that correction judgment. And when we are judged, we're chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. So correction judgment in our life right now preserves us from a greater judgment. It's like judgment on layaway. You're paying down payments a little bit at a time so you don't have to pay this massive lump sum that could take you out of the earth. I'd much rather be corrected a little bit now and a little bit now. I'd much rather, Lord, correct me over my anger issues, my anger issues, my anger issues, than all of a sudden the judge at the courthouse drop the gavel for domestic violence. You see, you see how that is? You pay a little bit now rather than... A, being arrested for domestic. I'd much rather get over my, my violence issues now than the judge drop the gavel on second degree murder. I'd much rather deal with lust issues now than the judge drop the gavel at my divorce hearing. Pay me now or pay me later, but it all has to be paid at some point. We are sinful creatures in our nature, in our flesh nature. Now, we've been born again and we've been made righteous, but you and I still have appetites and weird emotions and weird insecurities we've got to be corrected on on a regular basis so that we don't get judged with the world and condemned. Second Chronicles 24, 19. Yet he sent prophets unto them to bring them again unto the Lord, and they testified against the people, but they would not give ear to their prophets. Often God uses a prophet or preacher to correct with the intention of turning the situa situation around by calling to repentance. Sometimes this works. It's what I try to do every service. Preach against sin, preach against specific sin, call people to repentance. Sometimes it works, often it doesn't. Let me just tell you, every service you've been offended at me at, 25 other people have had the service of their life. And that's just how it works. And it's not just Chris McMichael. It's every pastor who serves God in the land. Every service you've ever been offended me at, I guarantee you, I've been texted or told later, pastor, you were talking to me and that helped me, man. You were like in my mail. You were in my business. You helped my marriage. You answered so many questions. And some ding-a-ling went home offended that service. Just because they're prophets doesn't mean they were successful. 
And remember Israel, their reputation was not serving God. It was murdering prophets. Judgment for remuneration. That's a fancy word. I had to find a synonym for rewards that kind of went with correction and instruction. (laughs) Those that have a judgment aversion fail to see that before anyone can be honored, paid, rewarded, or awarded, they must first be judged. Most of America has a judgment aversion. They're allergic to judgment. They, they, who are you to judge? Quit being so judgy. That's so judgmental. Judgy, 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 judgy. They fail to see their hypocrisy. And that is before anybody can be honored or paid or rewarded or given some award, they've got to first be judged. Unless, of course, you're part of the public school system where everybody gets an award for showing up. And now we have participation trophies. <laughs> no, 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 no. We, we don't believe in such things. You don't get participation trophies in heaven. Our rewards get burned up on an altar of fire. And some stand and some don't. Judgment investigates who is worthy of what. Judgment ensures that individuals get what is just. Nobody, one of the great, let me say, let me, one of the greatest disgraces in our modern times was Lance Armstrong, who was like a five or six or seven time Tour de France winner. He fought testicular cancer, came back, won some more Tour de France's and denied doping. But all along, yeah, okay, I was doping. But so does everybody else in cycling, which of course mama would say, that don't make it right. They drive their bikes off a cliff. You're going to follow them too, Lance? And so judgment gave who deserved what, the award for the Tour de France. And judgment stripped from Lance Armstrong all those Tour de France Awards because he was unworthy. He was a liar, a deceiver, and a cheater. And he was publicly disgraced. And you haven't heard anything out of him in the last five years, ever since it all came out. Judgment is necessary to give people what is just. Honors are paid once the recipient has been judged worthy of honor, like a a war veteran or Purple Heart recipient. You don't get a Purple Heart because you went into the ROTC program. You get a Purple Heart if you're injured in the line of battle. You have to be judged before you get a Purple Heart. How about the first astronaut? We honor the first astronaut because not only is an astronaut, he was the first astronaut. So we see it. Before we can pay honor to someone, before we know how to stand, we, we have to understand what we're honoring and why. We have to judge before we can ever give honor. How about paychecks? They are disbursed based on the number of hours you worked. So you are judged by your boss every paycheck. Nobody seems to complain about that judgment. Rewards are only given out when criteria, that's the Greek word or from the Greek word criterion, which is one of our words in the Greek for judgment. Rewards are only given out when criteria are met. Uh, Boy Scouts only get a badge when they earn it. Otherwise, you don't deserve the thing. Olympians are only given the gold medal after their performance has been judged against all the other competitors. So we see this, that there is a judgment for remuneration, or we would call it remuneration judgment. This common sense premise is also found in the Bible. Every man's work must be judged in order for God's rewards to be justly distributed. We got to embrace all forms of judgment if we're going to get rewarded. So look at Matthew 25. I have it in the New Living Translation. After a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account. 
Dun, 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 dun. That means judgment. This is one of the parables of the stewards. He called them to give an account of how they had used his money. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest, and I have earned five more. Doesn't sound like this servant fears judgment. He's confident. The master was full of praise. He judged his servant and rewarded him with praise first. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. That is judgment before we can give you rewards and praise and accolades. I'm telling you, our generation has done such a disservice to this set of kids, praising them for things that aren't praiseworthy, giving them stickers and awards and trophies for things they've not done so that we don't hurt their psyche or their ego. It's built into kids to arise to occasions, to arise to praise, to arise to challenges. It is, it is impunity. That is false judgment, false rewards, false judgment when you give kids stuff they don't deserve. And you'll, you'll raise a whole generation of entitled brats who embrace perverse judgment. And that, that cross plows the whole character and nature of God being the righteous judge. The master had an obligation to judge each steward by calling them to give an account. After his inspection, he could decide how to reward them based on their performance and faithfulness. This is what we would call in social sciences meritocracy. Most of the social justice warriors and the academics hate meritocracy. That is being ruled by your merit or being awarded according to your merit. Meritocracy is the lifeblood of the kingdom. We live in a society pushing socialism that wants to give people stuff they don't deserve and they want to call that compassion and social justice. There's nothing biblically just about social justice. It is unjust. Amen. Hopefully through our study of divine judgment, we'll realize there is no righteous judgment in the social justice cause at this, at this moment, which is why it's so dangerous that so many righteous denominations are embracing social justice. They have no revelation on divine judgment because when you take a step back and look at social justice and you see it for what its agenda is, there is no divine biblical justice in it. Do they see some injustices? Absolutely. But they're trying to paint the thing with a broad stroke and it's just not accurate. Are there discrepancies in the earth? Yep. Are there disparities? Yep. Is there racism? Yep. Is there sexism? Yep. Is there misogyny? Yep. But I'm not marching with a bunch of deviants because we have nothing in common. And if my job can be done along with them without the power of God, I want nothing to do with it. Let me just say this as a metric and measurement. I have been trained by my fathers in the faith to be sensitive to the Holy Ghost and to thrive and move towards the Spirit of God and the revival and, and the anointing and the demonstrating power of God's presence. The pastors and the churches and the denominations I know that have embraced social justice have dried up the Holy Spirit in their congregations. So you tell me, what, what's the rubric there? What's, what's the measurement there? What, what's the cause? How come every pastor I know that has embraced social justice has lost the move of the Holy Spirit? 
and gotten in bed with pagans and pedophiles and perverts and, and atheists and Christ deniers and progressives and heretics. Mm, I'm not drinking from that fountain. It may be water, but there's poison in that pot. 1 Corinthians 3, 13, let me read that, that final sentence. No judgment, no reward. No judgment, no reward. Every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and that fire shall try, try is the word for judge, shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide after it's been judged by that fire, which he hath built upon, he shall receive a reward. There's coming a judgment in heaven where our works will be burned by a sovereign divine fire. And most of our stuff may or may not remain. Some of our works called wood, hay, and stubble. I would call social justice wood, hay, and stubble. At the great day of judgment, all of our works will be judged by the fire of God to determine what sort of work it was. We will be rewarded but for God-honoring works. No judgment, no reward. 1 Timothy 5, 24 and 25. Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment. Some men they follow after. Likewise, also the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they that are otherwise cannot be hid. We see that this passage promises that eventually all of our behavior will be judged, both sins and good works. I want as much judgment right now as I can get. I don't want to get to heaven thinking I got a bunch of stuff up there waiting for me and have nothing because I refuse to let God judge my attitudes and my motives now. Some men's follow after, some's go before, everything else cannot be hid. Some are judged now resulting in rewards or punishments, and some will be judged later resulting in rewards or punishments. I want as much punishment now and most of my rewards then. A lot of folks would rather have all the rewards now and just la, 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 la about the punishment coming later. <clears throat> Revelation twenty two twelve, And behold, I come quickly. My reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. We want to make sure our work is worthy of reward. So ask God to judge your work and the motive behind it. Jesus Christ promises to reward his servants based on the merit of their works, whether they be good or evil, Hebrews eleven six. But without faith, it is possible to please him for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So why did I pick that verse? Well, because judgment rewards not the mediocre seeker, but judgment rewards the diligent seeker. There's, there's a reason there's no presence of God in the seeker churches because they're not diligently seeking. They're just kind of mediocrely seeking. God rewards those that diligently seek him. And he said, if you diligently seek me, you shall find me. We can tell that there's not a lot of diligent search going forth in seeker churches because some of those folks are staying there perverted, fornicating, drunk, gluttonous, lazy, deviant. So it's evident they haven't found God with what's being offered. When you diligently seek God, he rewards you. The word reward there means he that holds the bag that pays the wages. There is a, re a reward, a paycheck for diligently seeking God. And God's going to judge the, the aptitude of your search. Was that a, like mama? Mommy, I can't find it. Did you look? Yes. Did you really look? Every, everybody's wife has told them that. Like they say, it ain't lost to mama can't find it. My wife said yesterday, you know, honey, how they say it ain't lost to mama can't find it. I said, yeah. She said, I can't find it. I said, well, then it's lost. <laughs> a lot of rewards in heaven for mamas because they diligently know how to search for stuff. 
This aspect of judgment can be summarized with a simple maxim. No judgment, no reward. So now we get into this judgment as punishment. So we've had judgment as inspection, judgment as correction, judgment as remuneration or rewarding. Now we get into judgment as punishment. Remember, this is a spectrum. And if you're inspected and corrected, you can and pass the correction, you can be rewarded. But if you're inspected and corrected and you do not make the correction, you don't get rewards, you get punishment. So the tree forks at that point. And it's totally up to us and our heart. This is probably the form of judgment with which we are the most familiar. There are several different forms of punishment judgment ranging from resistance and opposition, which let us let it never go beyond that, church, all the way up to wrath, vengeance, and destruction. I don't even want to kind of get into the resistance beginning of the spectrum. I don't want God to even resist me. I want to stay there with the correction, instruction, correction, instruction, reward, correction, instruction, reward. I, that's, that's my jam. That's where I want to jive at. Correction, inspection, reward. Correction, inspection, 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 resistance. I'm sorry, Lord. Correction, inspection, reward. That's where I want to be. Some Christians, though, man, they got such a high pain threshold. <laughs> oh, man. You need to pray that you have a spiritual, a low spiritual pain threshold that you have a low spiritual pride threshold, that you humble yourself very quickly. Some folks have to hit bottom hard and go kersplat before they humble themselves, like the prodigal in the pig pen. So let's look at resistance judgment. James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5 say the same thing. Both of them apostles of the Lord. He giveth more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We see this as the first real form of punishment in the judgment spectrum. And it's mild, but if you've ever been with God and then had him resist you and you're tender to God, it's miserable, miserable, miserable. And for the tender heart, that's all it takes. Just like in a household, you got a lot of different kids. Some kids, all they need is daddy to look at them crossways and they break down and start crying. Some kids, you whip them with that cypress spoon and they look at you, that didn't hurt. All right, it's time to escalate. <laughs> it's time to operate a little harder. And you don't want to be the kid that looks at God the Father with the cypress spoon and says, that didn't hurt. You want to be the kid that God the Father just looks at crossways. I'm sorry, Father. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. That is a tender heart that God is searching for. You know where you're on that little microcosm of spectrum as well. Resistance can be likened to standing in the way of someone. I always use the example of the Heisman Trophy and the, the running back with the football. We know the, the, st the stance there where he's got his hand out. If you're not a football person, you have no idea what that's about. It's not just some kind of dance move. That's him running, blocking a tackle, and that guy's coming for his legs, and all he does is put his hand out to the dude's helmet and just drives his face into the ground, keeps his feet up high, and keeps running. That's how I've always seen the resistance of God. We're moving forward in pride and God just puts his hand out and down we go. All forward momentum in life stops. All forward momentum in the spirit stops. His hand never leaves us. It just kind of maybe buries our face in the mud a little bit further till we say, forgive. Uh, in, in a sense, in the South, we say, uncle, father, have mercy. Or how about just simply, I'm sorry, I repent. In which case that same hand raises us up back to our feet and cleans the mud out of our face. And he says, I forgive you. Don't do that again. 
Resistance is likened into standing in the way of someone. When God resists us, he simply stands in our way and things get a whole lot harder. And I think we can all testify, forward momentum just stops. In this day and age, we can't afford to lose that momentum because what comes in its place is a lot of pain and suffering and lost time. Pride causes God to stand in our way and we don't need that. We need to be of a humble heart. This escalates to opposition judgment. And I make a big distinction, though you might could make a synonym between resistance and opposition. Biblically, I see a principle that's greater than resistance. Let's look at a couple verses. Leviticus 26. If you will not hearken unto me and will not do all these commandments, I will set my face against you. That sounds like opposition. And you shall be slain before your enemies. Okay. All right. Yeah, that got, that got intense real quick. Just by not obeying God, he sets his face against you. And when he does that, you, you can't stand before your own enemies. Numbers twenty two twenty two, And God's anger was kindled because he, Balaam, went with the men of Balak. And the angel of the Lord stood in the way for an adversary against Balaam. Now he was riding upon his ass and his two servants were with him. So the angel's not just standing in the way as resistance. The Bible says this angel is now an adversary. And the Bible says he's got a sword and he's ready to do some serious opposing. Psalm 35, 5 and 6. <clears throat> let them be as chaff before the wind and let the angel of the Lord chase them. That's opposition. Let their way be dark and slippery and let the angel of the Lord persecute, harass and pursue them. That is opposition. Did you know the angel of the Lord can be harnessed to pursue you, harass you, thwart you and make your life miserable? And because angels are invisible, you would never even know it was causing your life to be hindered, why you got laid off, why you missed the promotion, why, why this didn't go your way, why you were late, why that passed over you. We have a little window into the spirit realm that says the angel of God persecutes people. <laughs> this is one of David's prayers against people he didn't like. Apparently, we have the power to release those angels to persecute folks in our way. You have to reconcile that with Jesus saying, pray for those that despitefully use you. Oh, I'm going to pray for them, Lord, and I'm going to harness that persecuting angel. First Peter 3, 12, for the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. Just so you know, we're in the New Testament. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto the prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. That's quoting Psalm 34, but Peter says it applies to the church age. There's a substantial hostility increase when moving from resistance to opposition. If God resists you, he simply prevents you from advancing in your purpose direction. This usually results in a lot of frustration and pain. When God's judgment advances to opposition judgment, he will begin to take action actively against you. This may include sending his angel to persecute you. So let us not move beyond resistance and opposition. Let's say, all right, I get the picture. I was wrong. You were right. I don't have all the answers. Let me just go back to the house of God and be humble. <laughs> Let's not move beyond opposition because it looks bad enough as it is. But that brings us to the next step up on the spectrum and escalation called wrath judgment. The wrath of God is, when mo is what most people think of when they think of divine judgment. Wrath means fierce anger. Exodus 15, 7. And in the greatness of thine excellence, thou hast overthrown Egypt that rose up against thee. Thou went, sentest forth thy wrath, which consumed Egypt as stubble. Wrath is a fire that consumes enemies. 
If you have provoked God to wrath, you have basically become so stubborn, he has to see you as his enemy. We don't want that at all. The New Testament says, for this reason, the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience. That's in the book of Ephesians. Children, children, children. There are some of God's kids that are known as children of disobedience. And Paul said, for this reason, the wrath of God cometh upon the children of disobedience. Let's not make father angry. (laughs) This verse is taken from the song of Moses, prophesied by Israel's leader after their deliverance from Egypt. It is the first recorded mention in the Bible of God's wrath. That's interesting. It should come as no surprise that God's fierce anger was manifested against Egypt, given how many miraculous opportunities he gave them to let Israel go or just to leave them alone. So the wrath comes because 10, 11, 12 opportunities to just let my people go, let my people go, let my people go. And they would repent and back off and repent and back off. And then they'd fall back into their sin. God was very merciful even to Egypt. 10 opportunities to let my people go. And then he kills the firstborn and they say, all right, go. And then they have the audacity to mount up their army and stand at the Red Sea. And God says, I'm done. You thought I was mad up until now? I'll extinguish my flame with an ocean of water. It should also come as no surprise that the second mention of God's wrath is 17 chapters later when God is ready to destroy Israel for their golden calf. God is an equal opportunity destroyer. He destroyed Egypt and 17 chapters later, he's ready to destroy Israel because he gave Israel just as many opportunities. And they just keep provoking and provoking. Opposition will drive God to anger. Do not oppose him. Don't frustrate him because God has every right to be angry. He's God. I got to keep moving. This is our last page here. We see the same pattern presented here that we've seen over and over again. Israel falls away into sin, but out of his compassion, God sends sends messengers to correct, rebuke, and warn his people. But rather than turn from their initial sin, they add to their idolatry, mockery, rejection, and misuse of God's servant. This brought an untreatable wrath upon the nation. Let's look at Second Chronicles there. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes. That means continually and carefully. God sent prophets and preachers constantly, carefully and continually, and sending because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God And they despised his words and they misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people till there was no remedy. God is merciful. The last line of defense you have, church member, is a preacher. God wants to deal with you individually on your own. But when you start butting heads with the messenger of God and misusing him, there is no hope left for you. That's why Hebrews tells us, submit to those that have the rule over you and that they may rule over you joyfully and not grievously, that it might go well for you. The preacher's the last line of defense you've got. What happens if you don't have one? Nobody's praying for you. No one's interceding for you. We see that pattern of inspection, correction, and hopefully repentance. But when there's inspection and correction and no repentance, and no repentance, and opposition and no repentance, and opposition and resistance and no repentance, wrath comes and sometimes without any kind of remedy. You can provoke God to the place where he destroys you or breaks your life and you can't find what was lost anymore. You're relegated to what I call second-class destiny or third-class or fourth-class. Vengeance judgment. 
Vengeance has a negative connotation today, but the Old Testament concept carries with it the positive implications of justice, lawfulness, and ultimately salvation. So vengeance is a very righteous biblical concept that we have somehow messed up with our social gospel in the last 70 years. We might define vengeance as God's righteous retaliation for injuries and wrongs. Unless we get self-righteous, remember, vengeance rightfully belongs to God. It is his right. He is the Lord God, the avenger. Not superhero. He is the God of vengeance. He is Jehovah Vengeance. It's one of his names. <laughs> we don't hear about that because it's not a redemptive name. It's a name of destruction. Isaiah 61, 2, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. Vengeance seems to be the most violent form of God's judgment. The final judgment at the coming of the Lord is called the day of vengeance of our God. That will be the day he stomps his enemies to death in the winepress of his wrath. They will have provoked him to the final point. Jeremiah eleven twenty. But O Lord of hosts that judges righteously that tries the emotions or the reins and the heart. Let me see your vengeance on my enemies, on them. For unto thee have I revealed my cause. Our pattern of heart inspection, followed by some course of escalated action, is demonstrated here. Jeremiah knew that the men being judged would be found worthy of God's vengeance. He did not pray for these men. He prayed against them. There is a place in Christ, in prayer, where you don't pray for enemies anymore, you begin to pray against them. Most Christians will never get to that place of mature prayer. They're too busy praying, now I lay me down to sleep, even in their 60s. There is a place where you begin to pray prayers of imprecation and divine judgment. Jeremiah did not intercede here. He said, judge them, Lord, and then destroy them. Because he knew they weren't going to pass the test. There's much more to be said about each of these types of wrath, and they will all be covered more in future lessons. The key is to allow God to judge and correct you now so there may be found no reason for any greater form of judgment. Amen. Rather lengthy lesson, but we wanted to cover a lot. I didn't want to break it up into two, so we've gone over quite a bit. Love you. Father, help us understand these concepts. Help us to understand your divine judgment, that no judgment, no reward, and all judgment comes to eliminate sin and glorify you. May we invoke your judgment upon our lives and never fear it because we are paying monthly installments on it. We don't have to fear eternal damnation as long as we judge ourselves in your light. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.